The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everybody. We're coming to you live from Metropolitan in New York City on this uh, hot and muggy Wednesday evening. Uh, one of the topics that has excited a lot of people, actually, especially here in North America and in the United States, is the increasingly high profile that public archaeology has enjoyed over the past decade plus. And as we've discussed on a number of programs, it's the National Historic Preservation Act of 1966 that gave rise to a preservation ethic that has certainly survived and flourished over the years with certainly a fair number of ups and downs. But uh, we have increasingly gotten interest from the public uh, on what the nature of public archaeology is and what preservation archaeology is all about because it has become the dominant segment of archaeology certainly in this part of the world and also is becoming so in international circles as heritage management assumes a much greater role in archaeological research, archaeological investigations, and certainly in terms of heritage tourism and the fluorescence of sort of a new industry called ecotourism, which is going to be a, a much larger component of how many, many nations essentially build up their economies. But uh, not to get off the topic, one of the uh, items and one of the topics that has been very, very important, certainly for those of us who do archaeology here in the United States, is the role of various agencies, state federal, municipal, in sponsoring archaeological operations. And today, we are going to talk about uh, the Department of Transportation of the state of Connecticut. Now, Departments of Transportation, as we've indicated on several previous programs, uh, account for a large percentage of the archaeology that's done in, in individual states. Today, my guest is Ms. Mandy Ranslow, who is an archaeologist for the Connecticut Department of Transportation. Very often, we abbreviate Department of Transportation as DOT. 
And she has worked in cultural resource management for most of her career, uh, a career that has spanned involvement with consulting firms, museums, and, of course, now the state of Connecticut. She has a bachelor's in archaeology from Boston University and a master's from the University of Connecticut. She also has a very strong passion for public archaeology, which is one of the topics that we want to talk about today. And she is uh, currently serving as a president, as the president for the nonprofit Friends of the Office of the State Archaeology, and is also starting an MA in public history at Central Connecticut State University. I want to welcome Mandy Ranslow to the program. Thank you very much for appearing. Thank you for having me. So, you know, one of the things that we have done and what we do do in advance, and I'm, I'm speaking to the public here, is we ask our guests what type of topics they would enjoy talking about and because it really is about their particular focus and the types of interest that they have. And Mandy did something very, very unique and, and, and really uh, very sort of down to basics, which I think is a very, very good thing to do. And she talked about what the difference is, and she wanted to talk about rather what the difference is between cultural resources management and how it differs from other types of archaeology. So, Mandy, let's talk about that, and especially from your perspective as a DOT archaeologist, what is essentially cultural resource management, and really how do you offset it, and how do you see it as being different from general archaeology? Sure. Well, um, cultural resource management is the type of archaeology we do to comply with federal and state laws prior to any kind of project being undertaken. Um, this is different from the traditional academic background that most of us get at a, a university where we choose a research question, a site, and then we investigate that question. When you work in the compliance field, you don't often get to choose necessarily where you're working or what your research question is. You need to go out and first of all find out if there is a resource, an archaeological site, that might be impacted by the project and if, evaluate whether that site is significant or not and then determine ways to either avoid or perhaps um, change a project or maybe even excavate the entire site if it can't be avoided. And I think that's it's really one of the critical points that... Uh, we have to make and, and we continue to make in, in our program and, and uh, students who do archaeology um, are confronted with this very, very early on. And that is specifically that it's becoming increasingly uh, dominant for people not to be able to select exactly the type of archaeology what, that they want to do, but they are given a place to do it. And the place to do it is an area of development or a place that will be impacted by construction or any kind of other development and, and improvement operation. So having said that, how does your particular state function in terms of, uh, not your state, but how does your, your department, the DOT, function in terms of how they uh, work out projects and how they work out particular issues that they wish to deal with in the field of cultural resources management. Right. So uh, when the engineering part of our DOT comes up with a project based on um, public need um, for maybe increasing traffic or improving safety, they then send the project information to us. We're in the environmental planning unit, and we 
look at the project and the, the area that could be potentially affected by the project. So, for instance, let's say they're replacing a bridge and you need to look at the footprint of where the bridge is located and any kind of access areas or um, areas needed for, for construction activities. And we would look at that project area and look at, do some background research and try to find out if there's any known archaeological sites there or if there's a potential for a site to be there. And if there is a potential, then us as a department will hire a consultant to go out and do a, a preliminary survey. Usually um, in the Northeast, you do shovel test pits and to determine if there is any sites located within your project area. And that, that actually, I've been around and have been doing this for a very long time, had been doing this for a very long time. Um, that's exactly right, and that is the procedure, and you go through a stage, stepwise stage of what we call phase one, two, and three, that is essentially a um, sort of a nested series of investigative strategies that uh, assess the relative importance of uh, an archaeological site or a historic property in, in increasing uh, orders of significance. And I think one of the things that I think we need to emphasize is that in most cases, and, and I'd like your input on this, in most cases, um, you hire outside consultants to do that, although in some cases you actually have archaeologists like yourself on, on small projects that actually do some of the work yourself. So what I'd like to ask you right now is how much consulting work is being done in this day and age in your particular state versus actually having your folks or uh, your staff go out and actually do the work? Yeah, we have a very small cultural resources staff here at the Connecticut Department of Transportation. We only have two archaeologists and one architectural historian, so we don't have the capabilities to do any kind of actual field work in-house. We don't have the, the lab facilities or um, the equipment or the means to do that or the time. So we hire on-call consultants to do that work for us. So um, they're, you know, local companies that specialize in historic and archaeological research, and they go out and conduct um, either the uh, historic structures inventories for us or the, the archaeological surveys on our behalf. We review the work, and we work with the SHPO, the State Historic Preservation Office, and any federal agencies who are involved in the project, so we're the, the go-between, but we do use consultants for all of our heavy lifting. Do you think that the DOT does uh, the majority of the work in the state? I would say we probably do at this time, um, aside from maybe some large energy projects that are going on. I think the, the transportation projects are the, the bulk of the work that are going on. Yeah, aside from pipelines, which tend to be sort of the biggest uh, biggest operations that, that, that run through um, not just this part of the country, but all over the place. And so you have a pool of consultants from which you, uh, you put out proposals, right? Is that how right. it well, works? What we do, um, and every state DOT is uh, different, I'm sure, but what we do is every three years, we put out a request for proposals to consulting companies, and then um, from that application and interview process, we choose two. And so once we have those two consultants on board, they no longer have to competitively bid for projects. We just send them 
project information, work out a scope of services and fees, and then get them out into the field as soon as possible. Right, and, and I guess what I want to know, and and, and uh, I think the public should be familiar with how the process works. I mean, you're actually vetting companies, and you make your decisions on a variety of criteria. What are the criteria that you use to uh, to make a selection for an on-call uh, service uh, service arrangement? Yeah, we uh, we evaluate them on you know the the size of the company, their capability of doing the types of projects we need because. Um, because we have everything from, you know, small uh, phase one surveys, maybe at a bridge, to very large uh, phase three data recoveries. And we want to make sure that the types of companies that we hire are capable of doing all of that and that they have the, the facilities that are needed for proper laboratory um, processes like artifact processing and curation and just uh, a strong background in local archaeology. Uh, archaeology, um, the types of sites you're finding can be quite variable across the country. So we want to make sure that the companies that work for us have local expertise. Now, are most of the companies that you work with Connecticut-based, or is it normally a more regional basis like New England-wide, et cetera? It can be both. Right now we have a a company that has for decades been uh, in the state of Connecticut and uh, done a lot of work for us. And then there are also some larger, um, even global firms but ha- that have local offices. So we have a company right now out of Albany. So they're, they're quite local to us. And so so it, it, it doesn't matter really where, they, where their base is. It's, it's that they have a certain measure of expertise in the state or in the area, and they know how to confront particular... Um, problems and particular issues in archaeology. Right. What would you say that the trend is in this day and age? Uh, is more archaeology being done than before? Um, because the, the, as, as, as many people may or may not know, archaeology uh, on, on certainly on the state-mandated level goes through cycles. How is the business climate and how is the development climate right now for archaeology in Connecticut? I would say it's it's slowly improving from the recession. Uh, however, in a state like Connecticut, we are now at a point where the DOT is largely either just maintaining, repairing, or replacing existing infrastructure. We don't have a lot of room to build new roads. So most of our projects actually don't require any kind of archaeological survey just based on uh, known past disturbance of soils within a project area. Uh, having said that, uh, our governor is very interested in transportation, and we have uh, some big plans for the future, so I do first see us increasing our archaeological workload. And we'll be back with this discussion on uh, Department of Transportation, Archaeology in the State of Connecticut and elsewhere, and we'll be exploring some additional elements of this particular form of archaeology when we get back. Stay where you are. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Tune in each week for Monica Phillips and powerful conversations. This is a thought-provoking show for business people, leaders, and entrepreneurs. We'll feature today's thought leaders and industry trendsetters from across several locations and industries. Give yourself permission to be inspired and live a fulfilling life. 
Be sure to listen to Powerful Conversations live every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. State Departments of Transportation fund a tremendous percentage of the archaeology that gets done in the United States. And our guest today is uh, Ms. Mandy Ranslow, who is an archaeologist for the Connecticut Department of Transportation. And we've been talking about the general process of doing cultural resources work and more intensive archaeological studies at various historic and prehistoric sites throughout um, her state. And I was wondering, Mandy, if you could give us a couple of profiles of projects that you've done replete with uh, their research potential, how they were done, and uh, possibly touch on the public outreach of those projects, which are now be- which, which is now becoming a major component of doing archaeology a- anywhere in the country. Sure. Well, um, the first uh, project I can talk about is at the Bethel train station in Connecticut. It's in western Connecticut, and we are looking to expand the parking lot to accommodate more commuter rail traffic. And prior to expanding the parking lot into a very undisturbed area, we did a a phase one and a phase two archaeological survey and discovered a a small site on a a knoll uh, overlooking a brook. And we found that despite its, you know, small size, we were finding diagnostic artifacts. Um, One of the interesting artifacts that came up was a Neville-like projectile point made of this beautiful crystal quartz uh, dating to the Middle Archaic period, which is between 8,000 and 7,000 radiocarbon years ago. And uh, despite... The, the small size, it was determined that the site was eligible for the National Register for its ability to provide data on the Middle Archaic, which is a relatively um, unknown uh, time period for that part of the state. And yeah. so we had our consultants conduct a uh, complete data recovery of the site, and they produced uh, a nice technical report for us, uh, which we then did share with uh, the local community. Um, unfortunately, well, 
It's fortunate that it provides a good deal of information for researchers, but these technical reports don't necessarily have the public appeal uh, for the average person. They're, they can be quite dense with jargon. So what we're doing right now, we're in the process of putting together a short article for some local archaeological society newsletters to share that information with the public. And that's how we try to um, do some kind of public archaeology in a way where we're sharing some of the information uh, with mm-hmm. the wider public. You know, this has always fascinated me. I mean, I've been doing this for a really long time. And you talk about middle archaic and you talk about prehistoric archaeology. And like you say, the technical reports are are just sort of locked into a jargon and into a reporting venue that really throws a lot of people off. And you read the first few sentences or paragraphs and the average person would just sort of get lost in, in, in confusion, what it means. On the other hand, how could you not be fascinated by archaeological deposits and assemblages and tools that are 8,000 years old? And uh, there's got to be a way, I don't think we found it yet, but there's got to be a way to make it more palatable to the public and, and bring it to a level where people would be really sort of turned on by the fact that folks were living in in this part of the country, uh, I'm in the Northeast too, uh, for 8,000 plus years, and we're talking about a time frame that, like you say, is not really well known. How do you do that? How do you make it more palatable? Um, Even though, yes, there's not a huge density of artifacts, but certainly they're found in, in what we call hearths and fireplaces that you can date to this time frame, and, and, and a lot of people, I think, would be very fascinated by that if they understood exactly um, what the types of findings were, and, and, and uh, how do you just make that, uh, convey that message in, in, in a more appealing way? Do you have any ideas on that? I mean, this is what you're doing, so I, I'd be real curious about it, because I don't think we've moved very far in that direction. Right. Well, this site, it's it's difficult. There were no features found at the site in Bethel. Um, we, we do have evidence of, you know, tool making, food processing, where you could tie this into human activity, but it, it mm-hmm. might not be as, as tangible uh, necessarily with uh, such a small site and a, a small density of artifacts. However, I, I think um, to move on to a different project, um, I think we've had some success with some 18th century sites that we excavated in the 80s and 90s as part of highway projects. So Mm -hmm. we found these were four different projects, all done for different reasons, but happened to be done by the same consultant. And all of these projects actually identified early 18th century Euro-American farmstead sites where we were actually quite surprised there was no above-ground evidence for these sites. There were no maps that exactly pinpointed where these would be. These were sites associated with middling farmers, which I guess you could equate to maybe the middle class of today, people who didn't right. leave a lot of written records but left quite a lot of artifacts. And rather than, you know, well, actually, we did obviously um, per, uh, print up all of this into technical reports, we put together one booklet for the public called Highways to History. And that condensed the information from all four of these sites, tying together how these people lived, 
how they farmed, what they ate, how they were educated, what their children played with. And I think this was a really great success in showing uh, a piece of Connecticut history that is not largely known through our written record, but really highlighted how archaeology can bring to light some middle-class families from the early 18th century. But is, is that really what it is? Is it, uh, for lack of a better word, the relatability quotient, the ability for contemporary folks to say, ah, you know, I, I, this is a life way or a lifestyle, a subsistence pattern, uh, architectural features or architectural components of, of the findings that you have that I personally can relate to. And uh, it is, of course, obviously of historic significance. And is that the connection that makes it so vivid? I, w- I would speak personally and say that it is, regardless of whether the site's 100 years old or 10,000 years old. If, if I can relate to somebody that was cooking food by a fire, I find that immensely more interesting if I can relate to that experience in some way. Well, I guess then that's the key because, you know, those of us who are trained as prehistorians, we see the antiquity of it all as being so fascinating, especially when you start talking about the settling of the new world and, and, and all the information that we now have on earlier prehistory of North America. It just seems to be so fascinating. And yet, it's it's always the historic sites that really are the big draw, probably because there's so much more to work with. You're right. The artifact density at a historic site is uh, b- by far a lot more than um, any pre-contact site I've worked on. Oh, there's no question. And and uh, the preservation in many cases is, is, is really very good. And uh, like you had been indicating, I mean, the configurations of what you're seeing on the ground is uh, essentially sort of a precursor of what we have today, how people sort of set their houses out. In many cases, you sort of see the ethnic flow of a particular settlement group, say from the 18th or 19th century, whose, uh, whose settlement and subsistence proclivities gave rise to what we have today. And I think people are, are very, very prone to look at that and say, yeah, you know, that's how, that's how come we eat these sorts of things on particular days, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's, it's probably just a lot easier and a lot, a lot more um, meaningful to tie these ends together and, and into a comprehensive story. I guess you're seeing that as well. Yes, I would agree with that. And so uh, if, if, if these are the types of projects that are getting a lot of, lack for lack of a better word, airtime, um, how do you project them and how do you develop, say, a, a, a site that has excellent preservation? Do you actually uh, preserve it in place? Do, can you turn it into sort of a, a minor museum or a display area? How, how, what are you able to do with it once... Um, the obligation, the compliance obligation is fulfilled? Well, it depends on the project. We have recently had some great success with preserving some of our archaeological sites that are found at the location of wetland mitigation sites. Uh-huh. So what a wetland mitigation site is, is when a project impacts a certain acreage of uh, wetland that needs to be repaid somewhere else. And so oftentimes we will build a wetland where there might not have been one before or enhance one that already existed by removing the invasive species. And sometimes archaeological sites are found within these footprints uh, of the wetland sites, but wetlands are flexible enough that we can, that 
our wetland folks are able to design the wetland around and pr- actually preserve the archaeological sites. So in Windsor, for our, a large rail project that we're doing, we actually preserved a paleo-Indian site, a possible paleo-Indian site, and an early archaic site in place that will be untouched uh, going forward. And we're, we're really excited to be able to do that. Yeah, I think that's one of the points that we have to make. Um, and, and again, a lot of people don't know this, and, and you learn it sort of through, through being around and, and doing this type of work for a long time, is that the preferred alternative when a particular property, or historic, prehistoric, or a National Register eligible property is in the way, if you want to say it, uh, of, of development is preservation in place and, and mitigation or excavation or well, mitigation meaning to modify the context of whatever is in the way is, uh, is, is really uh, a last, last alternative if there's nothing else you can do. For example, if there's nowhere else to put the road, that's when you take the site out. And um, I'm just wondering how that the mentality and how that uh, template is working in Connecticut these days because it is a crowded place I mean there's not that much terrain there and what do you do I would say that that in in many cases the potential for rerouting is not that great is it no, especially on our rail projects, which we seem to have a lot of right now, and you're certainly right. not moving rail lines in the state, so uh, that can be uh, problematic at times. And uh, there are very strong federal laws, uh, like Section 4F of the Department of Transportation Act, that does require uh, DOTs to avoid, unless there is no possible other way um, to avoid these historic sites. However, archaeological sites don't generally don't fall under this protection because archaeological sites are most of the time important because of the data that they yield. So data recoveries and gathering up that information and conducting the analysis is still seen as uh, an acceptable part of mitigation. So we don't have as stringent of a law to avoid our archaeological sites that you might if you were to uh, have a National Register listed house in your way. Sure. And, and, you know, I mean, as archaeologists, per se, uh, let's strip it all away. And as archaeologists, I, I would say that most professionals sort of jump up and down, down and say yippee if, if they get a chance to do a mitigation. Because re- that's where the exciting stuff is, obviously. And uh, that's what, what sort of gets your, um, your mental juices flowing, if you will. But uh, as, as we have discussed, uh, preservation in place is normally the alternative. And uh, we'll be back, and we will continue this very fascinating discussion on uh, Department of Transportation archaeology with a specific focus on the state of Connecticut right after these words. Don't go anywhere. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com On the morning of August 5th, 1962, the world awoke to the shocking news that Marilyn Monroe, one of the biggest icons in Hollywood history, had been found dead. What really happened that night? Join Nina Bosky as she seeks to uncover both the life and tragic death of Marilyn Monroe and what keeps her so popular over 50 years later. 
Goodnight Maryland Radio, live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tired of lackluster results with your marketing? Craving more leads in your business? Tune in to the Mojo Marketing Edge with the team behind Mojo Global Marketing, Ira Rosen and Corey Michael Sanchez. Winners of the Marketer of the Year, they will show you how to generate daily leads, build databases of raving fans, and close deals faster than ever before. See what's hot right now and how you can tap into it to generate an endless supply of customers and clients. The Mojo Marketing Edge can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we're back with a, uh, our third segment on a program on Department of Transportation Archaeology uh, with a specific focus on the state of Connecticut. And my guest is um, is Mandy Ranslow, who is an archaeologist for Connecticut DOT. And one of the things that I think a lot of people would be interested is in t- uh, examining exactly how the compliance process flows through and how it moves from stage to stage to sort of maximize the finish, uh, efficiency of the archaeological location process and on to uh, assessing its potential significance and possibly dealing with the effects of the archaeology on a potential impact or construction effort, uh, be it a roadway, a railroad line, as as uh, are the types of impacts that would have been generated and would be generated by uh, by the state of Connecticut's Department of Transportation. So, uh, Mandy, why don't you walk us through an interesting, if you can, or or, or an exciting project that is subsumed by all of the phases of the standard process so that the people can follow along on how these decisions are made, what sites to look at, what sites can be ignored, what sites have to be removed, and how that entire process plays out when you're making these uh, very major decisions on how to make the landscape sort of amenable to development when it has to be done. Sure. Well, one of my largest projects right now is on the Housatonic Rail Line, which follows the Housatonic River out in western Connecticut. And this project involves the replacement of four historic rail bridges dating from 1900 to 1933. So these bridges have been out there for quite some time. It's a very rural, undeveloped area, uh, very wooded, and 
obviously along along the river. So when I first learned about this project from the engineers, we went out and did a, a site visit. So it was just me and some of the other engineers who went out, and we looked around the landscape. You look for possible prior disturbance or any evidence of possible um, occupation historically of the land. And, of course, archaeologists assume that at confluences of rivers or um, terraces along rivers would be optimal places for Native peoples to live in the past. And then even at one of these particular bridge sites, there's a sawmill, remnants of the wheel um, the wheel pit is there and some house foundations. So immediately we knew we had an archaeologically sensitive project. So our consultants went out and they did phase one archaeological surveys and background research for three of the four bridge sites. One of the bridges is actually in a, uh, inundated in a swamp and has no archaeological potential, but the other three sites did. Mm-hmm. And these bridges are in very remote areas, so not just the bridge replacement is uh, the area of potential effect, but also access roads to get in there and staging areas. So all of these um, pieces of land that are going to be used for the project need to be surveyed. So the phase one survey identified two sites, and when you're doing the phase one survey, you're just going out there to look for them, just to identify them. So you right. test them at maybe a 10-meter interval, so it's, it's pretty spaced out. So once we identify locations of sites, we sent the consultants back out there to do a phase two survey, and the phase two survey is meant to define some site boundaries, maybe identify the time period the site dates to, and to get a better feel for what's going on. So they went out and they did their phase two survey, which was at a tighter interval, like five meter intervals uh, around test pits that had identified artifacts. And these these sites pretty much cover our entire staging areas. So the boundaries right. could not be determined. They're well outside of what our uh, area of potential effects would be. So now we know that we have two sites, and what I do is it's my job to go back to the engineers to let them know what's going on out there and to see if there's any room for avoidance at this point. We don't want to just immediately go dig up sites if we don't need to. Well, that was Um, the whole idea of preservation. Right. So with a project like this where you're replacing very large old bridges, you, you need cranes and you need stockpile areas. And so there's really, at this point, no way to avoid these two um, archaeological sites. And um, the mill site, while outside of the project area, is composed of unconsolidated uh, masonry. So there's no mortar in it. So we also need to worry about provisions for vibrations due to construction. So we need to start putting some protective measures in place for one of our sites that's out there and then determine what we're going to do with the other two sites that we've identified. Right now, we're at a stage where um, all along, we've been consulting with the State Historic Preservation Office so they know what's going on. And the Army Corps is issuing permits for this project, so they're the federal agency involved. So they've been sending information to the federally recognized tribes who are interested in this project. And so right now, we are at a point where we're waiting for um, some public meetings to happen to determine if there's any other stakeholders, people who might be interested in this process, and uh, to talk to the tribes more at length to decide how we're going to mitigate the project. Well, then you're raising issues that... I think some people are not not familiar with and and sort of it opens up the uh, sort of the entire scope and the involvement of people 
and the interest, uh, the interested parties into a, a much larger arena, if you will. First of all, once you once you get the Corps of Engineers involved, then obviously it's a federal undertaking, and so it has that component. And second of all, you had mentioned stakeholders, and why don't you talk a little bit about what that means and how the role of stakeholders affects the ultimate disposition of what you're going to do. Sure. Well, a stakeholder is uh, really anybody who has a vested interest in the project. So in the case of pre-contact native sites, we work with our tribal groups who attach uh, ancestral ties to these sites or possibly do. Um, The federal laws require us to consult with federally recognized tribes. Uh, However, we do actually have three state-recognized tribes in Connecticut, and they are provided the opportunity to get involved in the process uh, the same way any member of the public or a historical group would be uh, invited to be part of that process if they have a vested interest. Uh, We do have a state museum, the Sloan Stanley Museum, nearby the project area. We've worked with them uh, because we might because we'll be working near their their museum area and this mill site might be of potential interest to them. So we might be talking to them going forward about this this process. Well, you you hit on something important here. The involvement of Native American groups is something that, I won't say it's new, but certainly since 1990 with the initiation of NAGPRA, Native American Grapes and uh, Repatriation, Protection and Repatriation, that has changed certainly the landscape of doing archaeology in, uh, in much of the country. Why don't you give us a couple of uh, updates on how that has uh, impacted work in Connecticut? Sure. Well, um, NAGPRA has not really applied to any of our projects that I know of as of yet. We don't have a lot of federal land here. However, the 106 process does provide the opportunity for the the tribes to get involved if there's any chance of them having uh, a site that they ascribe religious or cultural significance to. Significance to, yeah, sure. Right. And And in the, I would say in the last uh, 10 or 15 years, the two federally recognized tribes within our state, the Mashantucket Pequot and the Mohegans, have established tribal historic preservation offices. And the federal agencies will send project information to them the same way that they send information to state historic preservation offices to get their input and comment on any projects uh, really throughout the state to identify any sites that we might not be aware of, but that might be important to them that we might need to avoid or perhaps not even investigate archaeologically. Sometimes that's not an appropriate thing to do if it's a cultural site. So take us take us uh, through your project uh, further with the uh, with this particular project that you're involved in. So actually, this is that's pretty much where I, I am stuck at this moment. I am waiting for um, some public meetings to happen. Uh, we don't really have a database per se of historical groups or commissions that might have an interest in a project. So. A lot of times it comes down to me, you know, doing a Google search, but then these public meetings will provide us an opportunity uh, to meet some of these people who might be interested in the project. And so and hopefully we'll, we'll identify our stakeholders then. And you have to, I, I guess, uh, and I know certainly from my experience, these things can be testy 
on occasion. I mean, the uh, the entire foundation of the project can sometimes be questioned, and you sort of have to do a very delicate balancing act to meet the expectations of, uh, for lack of a better word, the developers, or in your case, your your office, and and the. Uh, the, the stakeholders, have you come across situations like that before, or has it generally been uh, relatively cooperative? Well, in my experiences, I've, I've had a pretty good experience so far. I, I do see my, uh, my position here at the department as uh, somebody who is supposed to give the engineers a heads up if there is going to be a potential to have some controversy and to, to really work with these groups as soon as possible in the process and to have open communication. We have a very large um, rail bridge project called the, the Walk Bridge. It's over the Norwalk River in, in the city of Norwalk. It's on the Metro North Line, so it's a very um, heavily traveled line. The bridge right, is right. well past uh, its its use and uh, needs to be ultimately replaced. So they have some very strong-minded and very interested historic groups in the city of Norwalk, and they love their history and they love their bridge. And, you know, we really had to work hard with them at the beginning to explain from an engineering standpoint you know, why that bridge needed to be replaced and to give them all of the information possible. You never want to underestimate your stakeholders and their, their knowledge and their ability to understand, you know, engineering and feasibility studies. So, you know, we provided all of that information and what, what started off as a, a somewhat contentious um, project, now everybody understands the, the purpose and need of the project and, and now we're moving forward on on you know, design of the new bridge and mitigation. And so, you know, by working with them very closely, we've already had three meetings on it and we are planning to have a couple more. Uh, we've been able to smooth things out. Well, that that's a, that's a very favorable development because there are situations where uh, people, in many cases, stakeholders and other parties are under the assumption that archaeology, quote-unquote, or historic preservation can actually impede development. And that's generally not the case. It's uh, generally moving along the lines of what you've described, where there seems to be sort of, or there's a need actually for there to be a uh, cooperative, uh, mutually beneficial solution to these matters. And um, people understand that in many cases, especially in sort of the very densely populated in states in, in the Northeast where there's not a lot of room to mess around, for lack of a better word, you just simply have to run that project through and you do everything you can in your power to, uh, to mitigate the deleterious effects. But ultimately, there has to be some kind of a happy medium. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that in your situation, that seems to be working out well. Right, and and that's not to say that you know we we can just explain away all of our, our historic resources. We did have a, a preservation success story in the the historic south end of Stamford, Connecticut, where an intersection realignment project was going to require the demolition of a national register listed. Uh, structure and huh? by working with regional and local historic preservation groups and the just the local community in general who was 
I've invested in not just the historic properties, but the, the overall livability of their community, we were mm-hmm. actually able to find a compromise with the city and the engineers that would redesign the intersection in another way that would require the demolition of a building, but a non-contributing building to the historic district. So we, we do try to find successes where we can. And it's a nicely creative uh, opportunity for everybody to sort of reach a happy medium and a compromise that, that doesn't 100% satisfy anyone, but certainly doesn't disappoint them in the same degree as well. So these seem to be uh, very successful stories of, of uh, making most of the parties happy. We'll be back with a final section on this very fascinating discussion on the Department of Transportation, archaeology, and the way um, state archaeology is done um, by Departments of Transportation right after these words. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We've been having a very fascinating discussion with Mandy Raslow, who is an archaeologist for the Connecticut Department of Transportation, and we've been discussing sort of the genesis of an archaeological and preservation project in a variety of different settings, prehistoric sites, historic sites, um, situations that involve stakeholders, occasional controversy, and how to reach a happy medium when uh, development interest and preservation ethics uh, may or may not come into conflict and, and, and how these issues can be resolved in, in a mutually beneficial way that doesn't satisfy any 
party 100%, but certainly goes a long way in reaching compromise and creates sort of a let's live with its context for um, for archaeology and uh, the development interest that has to be involved, certainly in transportation issues. That would mean development of roads, railroads, and other corridors for transportation. You had mentioned during the break, Mandy, something about a preservation issue that's a little ticklish and one that involves a number of different types of circumstances that one doesn't normally encounter. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that one? Sure. Well, in the town of Montville, in the the village of Chesterfield, the Department of Transportation, years back, acquired a a piece of property for an intersection improvement project, which has not happened. And it sometimes in the course of projects at the, the DOT, we end up putting some on the shelf. Sometimes they come off the shelf, and sometimes they just languish on the shelf uh, indefinitely and might happen in the future. So when we acquire land, we we hold on to that land until that project might actually happen. And so what happened was we acquired a portion of the New England Hebrew Farmers of the Emanuel Society site, which is a late 19th century Jewish farming community, and we acquired their, the remnants of their creamery building. So this Jewish community was settled as a part of a, a larger program to bring Jewish families out of the cities, out of the slums, and to settle them on unoccupied farmland. And this happened at about half a dozen towns in Connecticut. And they were given loans to buy land. They established synagogues and businesses and were and had some varying degrees of success. This particular site uh, was largely abandoned by the 1930s. The synagogue uh, was actually used until uh, probably the, the 1950s, until it was burned down in 1975. So there's still plenty of foundation walls uh, still standing. Uh, the University of Connecticut has actually done some excavations on this site. It has been listed on the National Register of Historic Places and is also listed as a Connecticut State Archaeological Preserve. So this is a very significant site with a very active stakeholder uh, group. They are the descendants of the families that occupied this site, and they live all over the country, but they do uh, have a very vested interest. And I have been working with the president of this organization, Nancy Savin, to try to find some kind of compromise for site preservation uh, that makes this group happy, uh, but also... Um, makes my my department happy too and doesn't preclude them from doing some kind of intersection project in the future. So it's kind of a tricky situation where the building, the creamery building that the the DOT owns is very fragile. The the walls are very thin and they, they do need to be stabilized. And there's no mechanism within DOT to allow me to do that kind of uh, preservation work. However, the stakeholder group is very interested in doing that stabilization work, but wants to be assured that they have some kind of stake in what happens on this property going forward and that they are on the list of people who can purchase this land if the, the state ever does go back and sell it after their intersection project. So I've been working with some really lovely people in uh, my rights-of-way group, and they're trying to find some kind of way to give a historic preservation easement to this uh, uh-huh. Hebrew farmers group so that they can come in and stabilize the site that's actually on DOT property. And who's funding this? That group is actually willing to fund this, but they want some assurances that um, the site will be protected, that the site will not be adversely impacted 
directly by our intersection project and that uh, the property won't be sold to somebody outside of um, this group. So that's one of those situations where you absolutely require a certain understanding on both sides of of what has to be done and, and how much how heritage needs to be preserved in a certain type of context when things do, do in fact need to move forward. And you've been working on this for a while now? I've been trying to work on this for the last year. Right now it's in the lawyer's hands. My, uh, my job was ah. for me to explain to the engineers how this is a very beneficial thing for the department to work with this stakeholder group to preserve this site, to not let it fall down on our watch because we don't want you know, such a significant site to fall apart because we don't have a mechanism for preserving it. And I think you've hit on, on uh, as, as we wrap this up, you hit on one of the more intriguing elements of the type of work that we do, which is to bring in professionals from a variety of different walks of life, and lawyers, engineers, construction people. And for archaeologists, that can certainly be an eye-opener, especially for people like us who have been trained to speak a certain language, a certain way to our colleagues. And uh, when we get into real-world issues, uh, which preservation is certainly all about, we have to sort of change our clothes a little bit and have to change our language and we have to um, try to reach sort of a common ground with a lot of different people. And I think it's one of those uh, elements that is going to be increasingly more important in our profession as we have increased contact with the general public. And I think you're one of the people who seems to be uh, at the forefront of that type of thing. And I think going forward, that's what we're all going to have to do, don't you think? I think you're right. And on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap up this program. Thank you, Mandy, for a very fascinating discussion on the archaeology and cultural resources of departments of transportation and how they impact development interests on a statewide basis. Uh, thanks so much. And until next week, uh, when we have another program, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time. Thank you and good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.